Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the American blues singer Gladys Bentley. We have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode is going to include discussions of period-typical racism and will include outdated language for African-American people in quotes. It will also include discussions of period-typical queerphobia, including anti-queer legislation, the medicalization of queerness, and internalized queerphobia. We'll also be using some language for lesbians that has at times been used as slurs. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. So before we get started, as we normally do at the start of a person's life, I'm going to jump in when Gladys was 45 years old in the year 1952. Revolutionary. <laughs> okay then. Is there time travel in this episode? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no time travel in this episode. The reason we're jumping in here is because 1952 is the year that one of our main sources was written, and I want to talk about that source as part of our lit review before we actually <laughs> talk about Gladys's life. So in the 1940s and 1950s in the USA, politicians like Senator Joe McCarthy were spearheading moral and political panic about queer people in the understanding that queer people were not only immoral, but also susceptible to blackmail and therefore more likely to become communist spies. Gladys Bentley had built her career on being an openly queer and gender non-conforming blues performer, but in 1952, in the African-American magazine Ebony, she wrote an article titled I Am A Woman Again, in which she talks very openly about her queerness before renouncing it and championing heterosexuality and heteronormativity. In this article, she says... I became a woman again when I discovered and accepted the one glorious thing which, for so many years, I had bitterly fought with all my heart, mind, and body. The love and tenderness, the true devotion of a man. Oh, I thought it was going to be Jesus. <laughs> is the man Jesus? The man is not Jesus. Okay. Uh, she did definitely become more involved with her church later in her life, but she doesn't necessarily link that to her okay, queerness sure. or lack of queerness. So, like, Jesus is here, but only incidentally. All right. Background character. <laughs> yeah. Incidental Jesus yeah. is my Christian rock cover band. <laughs> okay. Do you cover Christian rock songs or do you do Christian covers of rock songs? Because, like, both are bad. The first one. Anyway, what happened to you, Gladys? <laughs> we'll talk a lot more about kind of mm. the background to this article and what was happening in Gladys's life at that time when we get to that. I think the sort of political background of McCarthyism is... Yeah. broadly the main thing you need to know there and the reason that I wanted to bring this up and mention at the start is because this article is the only information we have about Gladys in her own voice well that's quite a pickle it is quite a pickle that we are in <laughs> yep and it's also the only source of information we have about her childhood before she was about 21 okay so outside of that, most of our biographical information comes from what can be gleaned from newspaper articles nobody's ever written a full biography of Gladys and done the work of like interviewing people who knew her or anything like that. Is that uh, something that could still be done, do you think? She was born in 1907. Uh -huh. So like a lot of the people, anyone who knew her in her early life is going to be dead. Yeah. But from her later life, there would probably still be some people st uh, still alive who could talk about her, but definitely it'd have to be done pretty soon. Mm. I'm not aware of anyone working on one, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but hopefully someone is. Yeah. So I just wanted to raise that and have you keep in mind that that's, the sources we're working with before we start talking about Gladys's life. So Gladys was born in Philadelphia on the 12th of August 1907 to George and Mary Bentley. She was the oldest of four siblings in a black working class family. 
According to Gladys's article in Ebony, Mary had wanted a son and she was very disappointed when she had a daughter, refusing so much as touch her child or nurse her child. Gladys, in turn, says she always felt repulsed by men, including her father, brothers and uncles. And she says, I suppose the reason was that they were admired while I was scorned. From the age of nine or ten, she began to steal and wear her brother's clothes, at first to feel she was getting even with them, but then, quote, I began to feel more comfortable in boys' clothes than dresses. Her parents and teachers objected to Gladys's masculine dress, but Gladys was obstinate, and she and her parents eventually reached a compromise, where Gladys would wear what's called a midi blouse, so that's what you'd picture as like a kind of traditional sailor shirt, like a navy shirt, and she'd wear that with a skirt. During elementary school, Gladys developed a crush on one of her female teachers. She tells us, in class, I sat for hours watching her and wondering why I was so attracted to her. At night, I dreamed of her. I didn't understand the meaning of those dreams until later. I want to mention this partly because it's Gladys's first experience of being attracted to a woman that we know about, and also because I just think it gives you a bit of an idea of how in her article for Ebony she does talk quite openly about like being queer and being attracted to women and wanting to present in a masculine way and these kinds of things. Like She doesn't deny that this is an aspect of who she is in her life, she just then renounces it and decides that heteronormativity is better. So is her angle on this that she used to feel this way but she has stopped or that she feels this way but has decided that that's not any good? I'd say it's more that she used to feel this way but has stopped. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say because she does sort of talk about, she talks about how there are other people who are the same, who, you know, have the same experiences and she refers to those groups of like, she uses like we if she's talking about queer people in society and she still kind of identifies herself with those groups. Okay. But at the same time, she says these things like I've become a woman again. Now I love a man. I'm able to mm. fit into this female role better. So I'm interested to hear how gender and sexuality interact in Gladys's life yeah. as we go through. What with her saying I've become a woman again mm. and things like that. Yeah, I, I will be interested to hear your thoughts on that. I don't really know. Because we have so little in Gladys's own voice, except this article, which yeah. obviously has a lot of there's a lot of other stuff going on and influence why she wrote this article. It's hard to say how Gladys feels about gender, but we will talk about that more. Mm-hmm. As Gladys grew older, so when she was like a teenager, her mother started taking her to doctors. She doesn't explicitly tell us in her Ebony article the reason for this, but it's apparent that it was connected to her failure to perform femininity in the way that was expected of her. Gladys tells us that she believes her parents meant well, but, quote, What my family did not know was that I didn't need a doctor, but love, affection, and healthy interests to supplant the malignant growth festering inside of me. And she seems to argue at this point in the article that it was the original rejection by her mother that first pushed her towards her gender non-conforming behaviour, and that her parents' subsequent reactions in attempting to force her to conform to femininity only encouraged her in this direction. She definitely posits at this point in the article that her queerness was not innate, but formed by these childhood experiences. She says, It seems I was born different. At least I always thought that. In later years, I learned that different people are made, not born. Later on in the article, she does present a very different explanation of her queerness, but we will get to that at the point in her life which that becomes relevant. Mm. Mm. Do you have anything to say there? No, I want to hear more about this person (laughs) before I... That's you fair. Know, make statements that might be unfair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's There's fair. already a lot to unpack there. A lot of those sentences 
I feel like you need to take them even just clause by clause in discussing them. Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to form a reaction to the whole because there's just so much going on there. Yeah. Um, there was a lot there where like the first part of what she said, I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's something we can kind of interact with and seems like fair enough. And then like it, the sentence just kept going. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the oh, one, okay. The one about her parents where she says they didn't realize I didn't need a doctor. I just kind of needed love. You're mm. like, yeah, yep, yeah, that's good. And then she's like to repress the malignant growth in me. You're like, okay not so good so yeah yeah or even just like you know the like nature versus nurture Mm -hmm. ideas that she's bringing up are not like inherently ideas that are hostile to queer people or that like we can't explore yeah but they can be hostile (laughs) yeah yeah look I was pretty confused about how to structure this episode because I feel like it's very hard to comment on Gladys as a person and Gladys's queerness without having a full understanding of her life but at the same time you know, I want to present you her life in some chronological order rather than just sitting down and being like, let's read this article from Ebony, 1952. But yeah, I feel like an analysis of that article in full would be very productive, but it's not something you can practically do on a audio platform. So we're just going to make do. So moving on from Gladys's childhood, sometime between 1923 and 1928, Gladys left Philadelphia and moved to Harlem. So Queer's Fact Geography, where's Harlem? New York. Good work. Gaza. <laughs> What was that? Where the gays are, <laughs> by which I mean where black culture is and some of those black people are gay. Yes, yes. <laughs> so as we've said, Harlem is a neighborhood in New York City. And in the 1920s, it was home to a large and growing black population who had left America's segregated South in search of better prospects and to escape racism. With more social and financial freedom than they'd had in the South, this community developed a growing political and cultural consciousness, which led to a flourishing of black political organizations, music, literature and art known as the Harlem Renaissance. I can't believe it's taken us this long to talk about the Harlem Renaissance. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's such like a big, like, as well as being obviously a black cultural moment, it's such a big queer cultural moment and Mm. we've never talked about it. Mm. We did talk about Josephine Baker, who was like kind of there for a bit and then she was like, guys, I'm moving to Paris. See ya. Mm. And then she left. But I think it's like how we've never like really properly talked about anyone in the Bloomsbury group either. Like we've skirted around them a lot, but we've never done an episode on the key figures. Like we kind of talked about Keynes, but not really. But even then we didn't do kind of Keynes' life. We were just kind of like, here's a list of everyone Keynes ever slept with. Yeah. I don't know. It's a shame we haven't talked about it, but it also just goes to show just how much queer culture and queer history there is that you can be like several years into a queer Mm. history podcast before you're like, hey, Harlem. Yeah, we we (laughs) have almost a hundred episodes of this podcast (laughs) that's true and we're only just now talking about harlem so yeah the harlem renaissance is a big deal so yeah a lot of big names that we could talk about in queer black culture come out of the harlem renaissance langston hughes josephine baker billy holiday ma rainey we there's like a huge and extensive Mm. list of people we could have done this first episode in the harlem renaissance on which is exciting yeah and langston hughes is gonna show up a few times here so That's that's exciting too very exciting yeah. <laughs> I love Langston So Gladys played piano and sang, and unfortunately I have no information about where she learned those skills, but she did have them. And she got her first permanent gig in Harlem at a club called The Madhouse. From there, her reputation quickly grew, and she moved on to working at a nearby club called The Clam House, which was known for its queer clientele. She was immediately a big hit. Langston Hughes, I told you he'd be back already, 
Langston Hughes writes, For two or three amazing years, Miss Bentley sat and played a piano all night long, literally all night without stopping, from 10 in the evening till dawn. Miss Bentley was an amazing exhibition of musical energy, a large, dark, masculine lady whose feet pounded the floor while her fingers pounded the keyboard, a perfect piece of African sculpture animated by her own rhythm. I want to play you an example of what Gladys's music sounded like. We do have some recordings of Gladys from around this time in her life, but they're because they were recorded specifically for a record label, and we'll talk a bit more about this in a sec, they're kind of much more conservative and traditional than what we know she would have played live. Mm. So I want to play you a live recording of her, although it is from much later on in her life. So this recording, I think, best captures the kind of energy that Langston Hughes is talking about in this quote. That's just an idea of what she sounds like. Jazz and blues people just go so hard and I love them so much. (laughs) Now imagine doing that from 10 in the evening until dawn. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's wild. I I can't imagine doing anything from 10 in the evening until dawn. Except sleeping? Except for sleeping, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that is true. So where we're up to, she's like just starting out effectively. Yeah. So if that clips from much later, does she kind of stay performing the same sort of stuff for like quite a while then? Yeah, she does. So she kind of has a part of her career that's in Harlem from the whenever she gets there in the 20s until she leaves in the late 30s. And we'll talk a bit about how her music develops during that time okay basically the trend is that it does get a bit more conservative in for example like the lyrics and the things she sings about but i understand it's basically the same type of music all the way through so gladys's performance was characterized by two things her masculine dress and her very filthy lyrics unfortunately we have no recordings of those lyrics because they weren't appropriate for recording But her particular talent was improvising obscene new lyrics to popular songs. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Wilbur Young, writing in 1939, tells us, So adept was she at this art that she could take the most tender ballad and convert it into a new low with her filthy lyrics and often had her audience singing along. So yeah, the nature of these performances, both from a perspective of decency and copyright, means that they were never recorded. (laughs) So does she have a standard repertoire or is she constantly... I think from what I gathered, she kind of developed a standard repertoire as Mm -hmm. she went on, but in this early point in her career, she was just constantly improvising. Okay. Yeah, I guess it was probably just, you know, this song is popular right now. Yeah. Or, you know, someone's requested this song. It's also very likely that Gladys's live music was explicitly queer. Once again, we have no recordings of this, but I say this because blues in general at the time was a very queer genre. So the voice that black women could gain through blues music afforded them a chance to take control of their image and particularly of their own sexuality in ways that broke out of the kind of dichotomy that they were generally forced to fit into, which is kind of a desexualized mother figure or a kind of younger, exotic, hypersexualized young woman figure. And through expressing themselves in blues, they were able to expand beyond that and express a wider and more complex range of sexuality. With regard to that, queer lyrics were very common amongst both male and female blues singers. 
1923, for example, Alberta Hunter sang, If you don't want me, tell me to my face, because five or six women long to take your place. In 1928, Ma Rainey, who was also a very masculine blues singer, sang, Went out last night with a crowd of my friends. They must have been women, because I don't like no men. These are just two examples of like a huge list mm. of lyrics I had written down in my notes, so they're not out of the ordinary by any means. So how have those lyrics come down to us? Like, are there recordings of there these? There are recordings of okay. these, yeah. So I don't know why it's the case that Gladys didn't record any queer music uh-huh. because other people definitely were recording queer music at this time. And when you say recorded, is that limited to, like, a recording studio at that yeah. point? Because, yeah. like, obviously no one can get a mobile phone out. And... <laughs> yeah, but... yeah. So they're, they're records. They were okay. produced with okay. a studio as records. Okay. And they were just explicitly queer. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very cool. Mm. And it's a pity that Gladys didn't do any of it. Are they like mainstream recording studios or... Because I know in terms of like publishing, there were a lot of like niche presses opening up for the black community to sort of expand there. But was it a similar thing with like recording studios or... I don't think they were recorded by black music labels, but Mm -hmm. music labels generally had like they'd make mainstream music and what they called race records, which were specifically black music for black people. Okay. And so these would generally be marketed on their race record labels. To be clear, like referring, using race to refer to African-American people and culture was the norm at the time or was normal at the time. Yeah. That's not a derogatory phrase at the time. And is there any sense that it's more possible for, say, a queer woman to record with a label than it is for queer men? Or is it seem pretty... Um, pretty equal in that regard i found more examples of queer women but there Mm. definitely were examples of queer men as well and i'm not sure if that was just the examples that i came across Mm. because i was reading about a queer woman or if queer women generally were more kind of publicly acceptable and in the public eye but yeah there definitely were queer men doing this and singing about male queerness as well so despite never recording queer music with a record label gladys was very open about her queer identity Which brings me to the second aspect of her performance, which I mentioned, which is her masculine dress. Gladys described her style as, quote, immaculate white full dress shirts with stiff collars, small bow ties and skirts, Oxfords, short Eton jackets and hair cut straight back. She later moved on from wearing skirts to wearing her trademark white tuxedo, uh, which some of the most famous photos Mm -hmm. of her have her wearing. And you've probably seen if you've ever seen a picture of Gladys Bentley. Yeah, I have, yeah. Yeah. It's very striking. It's good. It's good. I, I mean, yeah, a wide tuxedo is a pretty striking outfit. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is good look. Um, that's, that's excellent. And as she had in childhood, she maintained this style offstage as well as on stage. So she's just wearing a white tuxedo 24-7. Please tell me that's a fact. <laughs> Not necessarily a white tuxedo, but like, you know, like yeah. dandified male okay. clothing. She's got seven white tuxedos. Yeah, one for each day of the week. Yeah. Sure. You can imagine that if you want. (laughs) Yeah, no, I will put the photo on our blog. So if you're listening to this, you can go to our blog and look at the photo and it will probably be the cover image for this episode as well. Gladys was far from the only person in the Harlem community assigned female at birth wearing this style of clothing. Although we don't have record of Gladys using the word herself, she's often identified as a bull dagger, which has quite similar meaning to how we understand the word butch in a lesbian sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Except that bull dagger is specifically a word used by and about African-American people. And it was a common and generally accepted role or aesthetic in the black queer community at this time. And it was often characterized by this dandified masculine fashion. The community used various other words as well as bull dagger. Um, bull dyke and stud are two examples. I've chosen to use bull dagger because that's the one I saw most commonly used in academic articles about Gladys. I'm not sure exactly of the reason for the 
choice of that word, but I had to choose one. But there are a few other terms that could just as easily be used here. While this term could be pejorative, many people self-identified as bulldaggers, and it could also be used in a positive light. To quote the Macmillan Encyclopedia of Sex and Gender, it was, quote, associated with physical strength, sexual prowess, emotional reserve, and butch chivalry. And it is worth talking here about gender as well. Although, as I've mentioned, we don't unfortunately have much from Gladys herself about how she understood gender, or nothing that we can take at face value. So a woman named Mabel Hampton, who knew Gladys in New York and who herself might be described as a bulldagger, has done extensive oral history interviews with archivist Joan Nessel. And so although we don't have in-depth conversations from Gladys about this, we do have information from somebody in her community. Joan asks Mabel in interviews if she ever thought of herself as a man or as wanting to be a man, and Mabel says that she didn't. She adds that she just never thought about men that much at all. (laughs) (laughs) But when asked the same question about a friend of hers who presented in a similar way, Mabel says that she's not sure because they'd never talked about it. Mabel's comments here illustrate that there was space within the bulldagger identity for both people who identified as women and people who may not have identified as women. I like that like openness, like, I don't know, I never asked. It's a very (laughs) healthy point of view to have about your friends and friends' (laughs) genders. Yeah. Yeah. I like seeing that there. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. There are like hours and hours and hours of interviews with Mabel Mm. and like they're a good time. So with so little of her own voice, we can't know for sure what Gladys herself thought about her gender. As you've noticed, I've referred to her with she, her pronouns and as a woman throughout this episode because I don't think I have like strong evidence to the contrary, but you know, I would be willing to be persuaded. Despite being very open about her queer experience in her Ebony article, for example, Gladys never suggests that she understood herself as a man. She does describe herself inhabiting, quote, that half-shadow no-man's land which exists between the boundaries of the two sexes, and then later, as the title of the article suggests, becoming a woman again. I found it very difficult to draw conclusions from that since she, in this article, doesn't distinguish between sexuality, gender, and gender presentation. In the modern day, given the vocabulary we have now and our understandings of sexuality, gender, and gender presentation as being separate things, she may have identified as non-binary, for example, but just as easily she may have identified as a butch lesbian, and we can never know. And like, it's worth noting that a experience or experiences of butchness, and I'm sure this exists with the specific identities within the African-American community. Like I know that stud at least is still quite a common term for butch African-American people Mm -hmm. to use. That like, there still are experiences where gender presentation, gender and sexuality are not that separable, Mm. even if the broad conversation has become that those are separate things. Yeah. The, The question of is a butch person a cisgender lesbian or a non-binary person or a trans person isn't clear-cut. Yeah, today, yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, that but is true. I just, I don't think it's obviously an either or. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I also don't think it's productive for us to try and fit Gladys into one of these boxes. I don't think that gets us anywhere. Yeah, I, I guess there's like a fine line between like trying to shove a historical figure into a modern box uh, in a way that like removes nuance from our understanding of them and mm. trying to understand them in like the only terms that we really understand today in order to add nuance of their understanding of themselves. Mm. Like those, yeah, it's yeah. difficult to. Yeah. What we can say based on what you've said is that to some extent, at least Gladys conflated ideas of gender and sexuality mm. in terms of how she thought about herself uh, yeah. in a way that reflects the experiences of some modern people but not of others and so i expect you know there'll be some listeners who hear this conversation and sort of are like 
I understand perfectly. This is very much how I feel about my personal identity. And yeah. there are others who will be like, I don't get this at all. Yeah. Which is always going to really be the case when we start to get down into the nitty gritty of exactly how someone thought about themselves and their identity. And there'll probably be, you know, two different listeners who both listen and go, I understand this perfectly. This is me who actually have completely different experiences of gender and sexuality as well. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's space for people with various different modern understandings of themselves to identify with how Gladys understood herself. And so that like interplay between gender and gender presentation and sexuality, to be clear, isn't something that's like something that Gladys is interacting with at the time. That's just kind of like the general status quo. Status quo probably isn't the word we want here <laughs> in this niche queer community, but like it's it's just sort of like generally the state of things at the time in the spaces that Gladys is moving in. Mm, yeah. So in the spaces that Gladys is moving in, there are these kind of two roles for mm-hmm. queer women or queer people who are assigned female at birth in the same way that we would be aware of like butch femme mm-hmm. lesbian roles. They don't necessarily use those words. So they're using words like bulldagger and so forth. And I didn't really come across many specific words for the other role. In a pair, they'll use mama and papa. But individually, I don't actually know what the word was for the other role. But yeah, within that community, people are kind of falling into these two roles and a relationship will generally have one person fulfilling each role. Obviously, you know, there would be nuance within that and not everyone would fit that mould, but that's the general understanding in the community. So yeah, moving on to talk a bit more about sexuality. At the time that she was alive, and especially this time in the 20s and 30s, Gladys was generally publicly understood to be a lesbian, although she does in her article in Ebony, as we'll talk more about, talk about having relationships with men later in life. According to Mabel, however, Gladys was bisexual, but during the 20s and 30s, Mabel says Gladys publicly played up her lesbian image because it created a more outrageous and thus more profitable image. Which brings us to a discussion of the commercialization of queer black culture in a Harlem context. That's interesting, the idea that being a lesbian is more salacious than being bisexual. (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel like that's gone both ways, uh, depending on exactly which era and which community you're in. Yeah, I was quite surprised when I read that. And I was like, oh, so that's how that would have been then? Mm. Oh, not when I read that, when I heard that in Mabel's interview. I guess it probably has something to do with Gladys being more masculine in appearance as well. Like maybe a more feminine mm-hmm. queer woman would have had a different experience, a different decision to make about how to commercialise her sexuality. <laughs> that, that's probably true, yeah. A, a lot of the women that Mabel talks about, she doesn't necessarily specify whether she's talking about like butch or femme women, but a lot of the women she talks about do have relationships with men within like within the community her and Gladys are in. They do have relationships with men. Some of them are married to men and so forth. So like it's far from unusual for Gladys to have been bisexual, but that's what was understood within the community. I don't know mm. from the outside how that community was understood. So in 1927, New York State introduced what's called the Wales Padlock Law, which banned performances depicting, quote, sex degeneracy or sex perversion. Okay. <laughs> with offending theatres shut down. The law was designed in part to create a respectable theatre scene downtown on Broadway, and so Harlem largely escaped enforcement and became one of the few places in New York where queer people could go out and be more openly queer. Harlem thus attracted both queer white clientele with nowhere else to go out and be openly queer. And also white people who may not have been queer, but who were attracted to the spectacle of queer culture as something scandalous and risque. This attraction to the queerness of Harlem was tied up with a white fascination with black culture 
and with the Harlem Renaissance in general, white New Yorkers liked to go to Harlem to, quote, observe the antics of members of its enormous Negro population, their unfailing sense of rhythm, their vocal quality, something primitive, animal-like, and graceful in their movements. Oof. Yeah. Um, so that quote is obviously uh, its whole own kettle of fish. But, um, <laughs> it is. The, the general vibe you were talking about there of white people going into this queer space mm. um to kind of observe and to see these kind of salacious performances mm. history is really just a circle <laughs> <laughs> like wow that's that feels very you could write that about modern queer spaces and also of white people wanting to like take a fun little holiday into mm. uh consuming black people's culture oh absolutely yeah yeah i was interested as you started that sentence i was like where are you going with this are you going with the queer angle are you going with the race angle are you going with both what are you anything could happen (laughs) yeah obviously both it just i mean i can't personally speak to the experience of being a person of color Mm -hmm. in a community where white people are coming in and observing that i can speak to that from a queer perspective and you know having been in queer clubs in melbourne Mm -hmm. where there are queer people performing and a bunch of straight people there to gawk. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just 100 years later, still the exact same issue. Yep. Yeah, very reasonable. But as a white person who's been in jazz competitions, I felt I had to mention the other one. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exacerbating this problem further, some clubs, especially those along a stretch popular with white tourists known as Jungle Alley, played up to this exotic African aesthetic while others relied on a romanticized view of plantation life in pre-Civil War America to attract their white audience. Oh, Have we no. talked about this in before? Josephine Baker performed at one of these clubs oh, yeah. called the Cotton Club. I think yeah. one was literally just called the Plantation. I think also maybe in Henrietta Bingham. Oh, yeah, we probably did talk about this mm. because she was really into like jazz, but yeah. she was white. Yeah, yeah. we she, talked about yeah. that. She was like, okay about it. Yeah, and I think there were, you know, obviously a lot of these white people were awful about it, but there was also a subset that was, like, patronising, like, black artists and trying to support them and so forth, but obviously they were also just kind of okay about it because Mm. there's a lot of stuff that you need to work through and unpack to be a white person in these spaces, and it will never be fully okay if black people don't want you there. Yeah, that does make it really hard, I feel, to talk about a lot of these experiences of like black people getting the opportunity to be artists and be successful um, Mm. and express themselves in this space but like you know obviously in a podcast like this where we're gonna sit here for an hour and talk about this we can kind of unpack the nuances of that and you know we have an audience that are fairly engaged listeners but like i feel like if you're just trying to do like more mainstream history Mm. it's really hard to sort of be like okay so there were black people performing and also let's talk about the fact that some of the clubs were the plantation and some of them were all on jungle way yeah there's just a lot going on there um in terms of it was a good opportunity but also there was a lot of like negative stereotyping going on at the same time yeah yeah and like that's definitely true of the harlem renaissance as a whole like as much as it is a flourishing in black culture and so forth it's also really really tied up with this like white voyeurism of black culture but at the same time like white financial support but obviously there's a lot of problems with that like there's a lot to unpack yeah and you see that with like like modern rap and hip-hop culture Mm. as well yeah it's like hamilton's just playing quietly (laughs) (laughs) alexander hamilton (laughs) 
Yeah, so along Jungle Alley, a lot of these clubs charged higher prices than clubs in the rest of Harlem, and some even enforced segregation within the club amongst the audience. There were also rumours that some wouldn't let black customers in. So these are generally presented in the newspaper as like rumours, and then other people will come out and say this isn't actually true. And from what I could gather, it was more of a financial thing where the prices would be high enough that the local black community couldn't afford to get into these clubs and therefore they'd be really marketed towards white tourists but there may be some that were just stopping black people at the door as well i believe it yeah i mean certainly it's not hard to imagine even if there wasn't a policy for a venue individual bouncers not letting yeah. black people into a venue like unfortunately that's something that still happens yeah now so it isn't particularly hard to believe that it was happening in this environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the clubs that Gladys performed at, both the Madhouse and the Clam House, were near to but not actually on Jungle Alley. And so they attracted a white audience who sought a more authentic, I'm doing scare quotes here, Harlem experience that was less <laughs> manufactured to white taste. And thus both Gladys's crassness and her queerness appealed to them as kind of more fitting this salacious image of the Harlem that they wanted to see. As her career became increasingly successful in the 1930s, Gladys catered more to this community, and Langston Hughes describes her at that point as having acquired an accompanist, specially written material, and conscious vulgarity. Gladys's career continued to be very successful, and her fame continued to grow at this time. In 1930, she got her own weekly radio show, and she also opened up her own club in Harlem known as Barbara's Exclusive Club. She sometimes went by the stage name Barbara Minton. By 1933, she was able to move into an upmarket apartment in the exclusive Park Avenue. In 1957, writing in the Chicago Defender, Alfred Duckett claims that Gladys lived there with her wife, a wealthy white woman. Is that true? You said claims. Well, we're going to talk about it now, so let's, okay. let's see what we think. <laughs> I was about to say, do we have a name for this woman? <laughs> we don't have a name for this woman, unfortunately. Is um, this woman mentioned elsewhere? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Intriguing. We don't have any specifics about the women Gladys had relationships with. I don't have a single name for you. But this isn't the only mention that I've come across of Gladys having a wife. The reason that I bring this one up is because it is the earliest that I'm aware of. In 1988, queer writer Eric Garber wrote quite an influential biographical article about Gladys in which he reports an account by gossip columnist Louis Sobel that Gladys lived openly with a white lesbian lover and eventually married her in a, quote, highly publicized wedding ceremony. So it should be quite possible to find some of that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you would think that. Later articles I've come across even give more specific details about this wedding. Apparently it took place in 1928 in Atlantic City in New Jersey. And almost every modern article, both academic and just kind of general, that I've read about Gladys refers to this wedding, describing it, as Garber did, as highly publicised. In spite of that, the online queer music heritage archive, which is an excellent website that you should definitely visit, has done a lot of work collecting contemporary news reports about Gladys and has found no evidence of this marriage. So um, it, it either didn't happen or it did happen and it wasn't heavily publicised. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, given that the original report comes via a gossip columnist... And you said the article was from 1957? Yeah, the first mention of it is in 1957 and then we have another mention in 1988 that comes secondhand from a gossip columnist. Yeah, so what 30 and 60 <laughs> years later yeah so in spite of that which would obviously leave you thinking this didn't happen i've read that mabel has mentioned in oral histories that a wedding took place in 1931 there are however hours and hours and hours of tapes of mabel's oral histories the one that was cited for this claim did not include a mention 
I listened to several others whose like catalog records suggested they could mention it. They didn't mention it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist because there's just so much tape. Mm. Yeah, that's a difficult thing with oral histories. You can't like control F in them. Yeah, there's no transcripts of these, mm. unfortunately. Control so. F wedding. Yeah. <laughs> so Mabel does talk, however, about other queer marriages that took place in Harlem, generally a little later than Gladys' supposed wedding in the late 1930s or early 1940s is when Mabel talks about. And the couples she talks about are generally those couples I've mentioned already that we would consider like butch femme couples. She refers to them as mama and papa or various other phrases. That's really interesting, the idea that there were these kind of more formalised weddings of these relationships in the late 30s and early 40s, because by that point, you know, you're starting to get into McCarthyism and the kind of pushback against these communities. Yeah, yeah. And so you're kind of past the peak Mm. of those as, like, you know, intensely queer spaces. Yeah, she's usually talking about the, like, the late 30s and early 40s, so it might be, like, just before... We kind of see this. I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah. As we talked about a bit in the Wonder Woman episode, this there was a lot of um, queer countercultural movements mm. in that time as well. You know, during World War Two, and then yeah, it is very much like just towards the end of the war and as the war finishes that you start to get the real pushback. Yeah, and like when you see a government crackdown on something, you always have to assume it's because that thing was flourishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, it's just interesting because I feel like generally at least like my perception as someone who hasn't studied this era Mm. is that yeah like i think of it as like 20s into maybe the early 30s and then like i don't you don't necessarily think about the late 30s early 40s yeah yeah and like in terms of like queer performance that's true like Mm. i guess the public like face of it Mm. but obviously in private it was continuing yeah i guess it was you know there wasn't as much of an audience once there was a war on yeah, I guess that's true as well. Like, that's not just a queer thing, yeah. Yeah, so Mabel talks about how these couples would get a marriage license and sign the marriage registry by presenting themselves as a heterosexual couple. And then they'd hold a ceremony that pretty much mirrored a traditional heterosexual wedding, except that it had an all-female cast, including the guests. So she talks, for example, about uh, one woman whose mother gave her away at the altar. And a gay minister named Reverend Munro would officiate these weddings and apparently also officiated male-male weddings. So these are legal. These are legal weddings, yeah. Ooh, neat. <laughs> I love a good legal gay wedding. In the 1930s? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I was going to say they're not entirely legal because they like they applied on a legal document, but like they're legal. There's, yeah. there's legal documentation of these weddings. Yes, there is legal documentation of these weddings. That's correct. The people involved in them were conducting an illegal act. <laughs> <laughs> We don't have a problem with that. Yeah. (laughs) And the law didn't know that, so it's fine. Yeah. Mm. So are they using fake names? Yeah. I mean, from what I gather, like, they would use the real name for one of them and, like, a masculinized version of the name or something like that for the other. Yeah. Okay. Or they would also apparently, like, use the name of, like, a gay male friend that they had who was willing to offer his name for that purpose. (laughs) That's, like, the the ultimate, like, gay men being friends with lesbians or... (laughs) Alternatively, yeah, yeah. lesbians being friends with gay men, like, you know, solidarity. Just absolute solidarity there. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. I wonder how much of this was them actually, like, tricking people and how much this was people being, like, willing to be tricked. Yeah. Signing I, off on these. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess it really depends who's sitting at the registry office yeah. that day. Yeah. But maybe you knew that, like, if you went on a Tuesday, Tim would be there. Oh, yeah. And, like, <laughs> Tim was just like, Yep, Matthew, absolutely. <laughs> Mazel tov. 
and that was it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That could be the case. Yeah. Yeah. You only need to get like one gay working at the. That's true, and it's just like the <laughs> weekly like gays go down to the registry office. <laughs> Although we don't have a record of Gladys's marriage, like there's definitely a paradigm in which it could have taken place. Okay. That does seem a lot more plausible in that environment. Yeah. Like it, it could definitely have happened. We just don't have a record unless we can find this tape of Mabel that it did happen. So the cited tape of Mabel. Does yeah. she talk about weddings in that tape, but just not Gladys's wedding? Uh, yeah, I think she does talk about weddings in that tape. She also talks about weddings in several other okay. tapes. Yeah, still, the fact that she does talk about weddings, but not the specific one we're after, does to me make me more suspicious that like mm. maybe this is the tape that whoever meant to cite, it just isn't a valid citation. Yeah, the fact that they provided a specific date, like mm. they were like, Mabel says this happened in 1931, made me think that Mabel must like... They yeah. didn't just say, oh, yeah, Mabel said this happened, when in reality Mabel just said that this kind of marriage happened. Yeah, I just don't know. Mm. If anyone wants to go through and listen to all Mabel's tapes, then uh, please let us know. Yeah, and find out where she mentioned 1931. Yeah. So in 1933, prohibition laws were repealed. Ironically, instead of making the nightlife in Harlem more free, the repeal of prohibition made things less so, as the sale of alcohol in New York's bars and clubs became tightly controlled. The State Liquor Authority was established, which policed behaviour in bars, and venues could lose their liquor licence if they were found to be disorderly, which could mean queer. Queer performances for many venues became too much of a risk. In 1934, Gladys was performing at King's Terrace nightclub, where she fronted a chorus of what newspaper articles at the time described as eight liberally painted male sepians with effeminate voices and gestures. Sepians? Ah, they use it to mean black? I'd never encountered it until I researched this episode, but yeah. Like sepia, like when you have a sepia photo and it's brown. In this performance, Gladys performed, among other things, quote, a seemingly endless song in which every word known to vulgar profanity is used. In March of that year, so 1934, a formal complaint was made about Gladys' performance, and a few weeks later, King's Terrace Club was closed down. It's not clear whether these two events were directly connected, but they're definitely both symptoms of a change taking place in the culture around queerness, sexuality, and the Harlem club scene at this time. From King's Terrace, Gladys moved to headlining a show at the Ubangi Club, where her performances continued to grow in both size and self-conscious queerness. Here she was accompanied by a chorus of 40 or 50 pansies, as they're referred to, so once again, effeminate male performers, sometimes in drag, sometimes just as like sexy sailors and stuff like that. And her lyrics actively reference the way in which she plays with gender. One, for example, being, nothing now perplexes like the sexes, because when you see them switch, you can't tell which is which. Okay. Ubangi, as you can tell from like this comment, relied both on the kind of performative queerness, but also the exoticization of blackness for a white audience. There were rumours that even barred black customers, and many black people in Harlem saw Gladys as selling out by choosing to work there. One journalist described the club as owned and controlled by white racketeers for the patronage of slumming whites and petty gangsters. And I suppose we don't know what Gladys thought. We don't know. In her article, Gladys talks very positively about her career, Mm -hmm. but yeah, she doesn't really address this kind of racial tension at all. Mm. So we have no idea. Gladys was very successful at the Ubangi Club and she spent three years there. But during that time, we do see her gradually de-queering her act. So where she'd once been referred to as the king, she was now referred to as Broadway's queen of song and jazz. And her backup pansies were replaced by a troupe of women called the Ubangettes. 
Eventually, even this wasn't enough, and in 1937, Ubangi had its license revoked. In 1938, Gladys left New York and she moved to LA, where she lived with her mother. With queer people and content increasingly shunned from mainstream bars, Gladys found an audience in a growing number of queer-specific bars and clubs on America's West Coast. From 1940 to 1945, she was a regular act at San Francisco's Mona's, an openly lesbian club which marketed itself as the place where girls will be boys. Despite several run-ins with the police, Mona's was a notably long-running club. Clubs like Mona's and like the queer clubs on the West Coast in general were generally shut down as quickly as they started up. However, over the 1940s and 1950s, it became increasingly difficult for Gladys to continue her career in the same mould that she'd begun it. Performing in LA in 1940, for example, she had to seek a special permit to be allowed to wear pants on stage. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. Like, not that surprising, but also like... Did she get it? She did get it, I believe, yeah. Okay, what's a valid reason to wear pants on stage? I don't know what the details of that, like, legal process were. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, what was the law? Like, I guess, like, public indecency. When we did our episode on Stonewall, I did a lot of looking to see if there were, like, specific laws against cross-dressing or if it was just kind of a general the police didn't like it and i recall from that context in like new york that it was just the police didn't like it and they'd kind of find ways to stop it Mm. so i would definitely believe that it was the case here that there was no specific law that said women can't wear pants but they were just like no that's not right we won't allow it there certainly are like sporadic laws specifically against cross-dressing that come in around like the end of the 19th century in various places in the united states okay okay i mean maybe there were some then in la yeah, and there may have been laws that, like, were intended for specific behaviours but were then applied here. Yeah. Where realistically they had probably spent 40 years not being applied in that circumstance because there were probably women wearing pants. Yeah, just who, in general. Who weren't queer or who weren't, you know, actively challenging norms of gender and sexuality. Yeah, yeah. And so therefore, you know, the law had no problem with them. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And there could have been a law that was around forever. They just, they just pulled out right now to target yeah. like queer performers, for example. Similarly, when Gladys briefly performed at a reopened Ubangi club in 1944, reviews described her as grotesque and the club was shut down by police. So it is a one-to-one correlation in that time. It gets shut down because of Gladys. Ah, uh, yeah, I believe so, uh, yeah. So in the 1950s, Gladys changed her image. Although she did continue to appear at queer venues, she now did it wearing a dress and traditionally feminine jewellery like strings of pearls. And then in 1952, she wrote the article in Ebony that we've referred to. So what like sort of publication is Ebony? Like what's its, its tone? It's like an African-American, just like kind of media, culture, entertainment mm. kind of magazine. Her article was published in the self-help section, so the idea is it's kind of to help other queer people stop being queer. It's generally like a kind of more middle-class conservative audience. Um, The article Gladys published was apparently written to publicise her autobiography, which is titled If This Be Sin. That autobiography was never published, and unfortunately the manuscript, if it ever existed or was completed has been lost damn yeah that's so unfortunate (laughs) it is very unfortunate yeah i mean maybe it's somewhere but probably Mm. not i'd say hopefully it's just in an attic somewhere yeah hopefully it'll turn up one day i mean if the article was written to publicize the autobiography i would suggest the autobiography would have a similar tone to the Mm. article and kind of being about renouncing her queerness but but there'd be more details in it, so yeah. we could have this conversation a bit longer. <laughs> we could, exactly. <laughs> there'd be more for us to work with. 
So as I've spoken about, the Ebony article begins by talking about Gladys' childhood, as we described at the start of this podcast, and it talks about the factors that she believed influenced her into growing up into a queer adult. She goes on to talk about how she was unable to find personal happiness, and therefore she sought happiness through fame instead. But, quote, still in my secret heart, I was weeping and wounded because I was traveling the wrong road to real love and true happiness. She then goes on to tell us about how things changed when, while living in LA, she met a man named Don. She says, He had me very confused because I couldn't understand what I was doing letting a normal man pay attentions to me. But Gladys and Don grew close and Gladys began to consider marriage. Concerned that she wouldn't be able to resist returning to what she calls her old habits, she went to see her doctor, who told her, quote from the article, Your sex organs are infantile. They haven't progressed past the stage of those of a 14-year-old child. He prescribed Gladys a six-month course of thrice-weekly hormone shots, which would overcome predominant male hormones, a treatment which Gladys says helped her change her life completely. Following this, Gladys married Don. So this contrasts with what Gladys said earlier in the article with her claim that queer people are made, not born. Here she offers us a physical, biological explanation for Mm. her queerness. Whether there's any truth to this story, I do not know, but this was definitely one treatment that could be prescribed for homosexuality at the time. So I'm very interested in Don. We don't know anything about Don. She doesn't provide a surname for Don. Okay. So I guess like in terms of why she gradually changed her life and perspective and presentation, etc. There's an obvious explanation for that in the general shift of the country's like culture and political climate regarding Mm. those things. But like, you know, it's worth looking at other factors as well. And I I would just like to know a bit about Don and his point of view on her life. So the general progression of events she describes with Don is that Don was a friend of a friend. He was a sailor. She was originally very apprehensive about getting to know him because she didn't like sailors. Generally, she found that they kind of represented the worst of masculinity, but she gradually got to know Don. They started seeing each other. It's not really clear how romantic that was at that point. She definitely talks about being kind of confused about herself. And during that stage of their relationship, she says that she told Don everything about her past and about herself and Don was very understanding and was like yep I kind of knew all this already it's okay and then later on Don asked if he could kiss her she said yes and from that point she started thinking that she wanted to marry him that's Mm -hmm. all I've got on Don did they definitely get married is this a real person (laughs) I don't know she says they got married I've never seen a record of the marriage are there are there other accounts of Don not that I know of, no. This is so bizarre. Like, like Don could just be like a, a like a fake part of this story that kind of fits with this narrative of Gladys becoming more like conventional and heterosexual. I just mean that like we've had this possibly fictional gay <laughs> marriage and now we have a possibly fictional het marriage. Yeah. And it's just really interesting to have both sides of, you know, if someone was going to be like to argue about, and I think, you know, fundamentally based on her own words it's pretty meaningless to argue was she gay or was she straight (laughs) i don't think that's a meaningful argument to have but if you were going to it would sort of be like okay well here's the evidence and it's like there's no evidence and there's no evidence if you're going strictly by who did she marry do you want me to confuse you further (laughs) yes um well i wanted to ask so we mentioned earlier that gladys was like bisexual but played up being a lesbian for the 
publicity of it. That's what Mabel says, um, yeah. Okay, so do we know anything else about like previous male partners? No. No? Okay. And the way Never she's mind. <laughs> the way she writes about it in the Ebony article, mm. she writes as though this is the first time she's yeah. been interested in a man. Yeah, I was going to say that that seemed like the vibe. And mm. I guess I wonder like if this relationship occurred and if Mabel's right and she had had relationships with men previously, like what was the difference to her? You know, mm. Is it that like Don is a guy who comes from the Navy <laughs> and like heterosexual culture and these were men who were maybe more and involved mm. in the milieu she was in then or but like obviously it's just speculation because we know nothing about any of these people. <laughs> So never mind. Yeah. yeah. So Gladys tells us in her Ebony article that her marriage to Don didn't last. Oh, that's suspicious. Oh, that's so suspicious. <laughs> she then tells us that at the time of the article, she's now married to columnist J.T. Gibson. Gibson had died the month before the article was published, though obviously we're not sure exactly when the article was penned. And although his obituary in the African-American magazine Jet refers to him as Gladys's husband, another newspaper article from around this time tells us that prior to his death, he denied ever being married to Gladys. And as far as we know, no record exists of the marriage. Okay. Um, run this timeline by me again, please. So <laughs> she says she's married to Don. And then when does she say that that marriage is over? So she doesn't really give dates for her marriage to Don, unfortunately. She just kind of <laughs> says, I met Don. I married Don. It didn't work out, but like it was a good experience that helped me become a straight. Okay. But does she say that like a few years later or is she kind of be like, I was definitely married to Don, a real living man. But, <laughs> but it's over. Or like, is there like, what's the timeline of those claims? Like, is that all in the one article? Or Yeah, yeah so this okay. is, it's all in this uh, oh, one okay, article. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when does she claim to be married to this other guy? So it's all in the same article. So in oh. the same article, she says, then I married JT Gibson. So this article is published in August 1952. Oh. JT Gibson died in July 1952. His obituary refers to him as married to her, but in August 1952, before the Ebony article comes out, an article comes out which says J.T. Gibson denies ever having been married to Gladys Bentley before he died. So we have no idea of the timescale she's implying Which, of like when she married Don or how long she was married. Okay. No. Nothing? No. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> but, so, so, okay. So, so we don't have any record of her claiming to be married to this columnist before this article, but obviously she was. We don't Is have any right? record from her, but okay. in his obituary, it does say that he was married to her and his obituary is the month before this article. So there is mentions of the two of them being married before this article comes out, but there's also a denial from him. She or someone else must have just been generally claiming that yeah. before any of these obituaries or anything happened. Like yeah. obviously he can't claim that they weren't married after his obituary has been published. Yes, but I mean, whether he actually did say they weren't married, he was previously married to another woman before these claims, and I couldn't really find clear information about whether or how that marriage had ended, so it's possible that this article that says J.T. Gibson denies ever being married to Gladys Bentley may be influenced by perhaps this other woman who was married to J.T. Gibson and didn't want Gladys to be uh, connected to him. Okay. I don't know. I just It's one thing to make up Don, but like... <laughs> J.T. Gibson's a real human person. Yeah. So we're up to three, count of three plausibly <laughs> fake weddings. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting as well, though, because like when you say he had just died, it makes it seem like she was capitalizing on that death potentially. But obviously not, because she'd already been saying that before he died. The article also does not reference the fact that he's dead. 
So there's photographs like in the article, it's accompanied by all these kind of domestic photographs of her like cooking food and like making a bed. And the captions are like, Gladys makes the bed for her husband, JT. And like the article does not acknowledge that JT gets this. Is there a man? Okie dokie. So JT does not appear in the article. (laughs) Correct. JT is just mentioned in the article and there's photos of Gladys in a domestic setting. And I don't even know if those photos were taken in her house or in a different staged location. They look very staged. This is is getting into corkboard (laughs) What role does him being dead play in this, you know? So obviously the story existed before he died, probably. It's mentioned in his obituary, so it must have existed. Okay, at least on that day. (laughs) Like, I'm wondering if this story was around, but now she's like, well, I mean, he's not going to say anything. I can run with it. Or like what? I mean, I guess we have to consider the possibility that they were married. but Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, they were married. Unlikely. And she, it is very weird that the Ebony article doesn't mention that he's dead, even with like an editor's note at the start being like, sadly, Gladys' husband passed Mm. away after the writing of this article. Nothing. Yeah. That is weird. But, like, I don't feel like that contributes to it being true or false. No, I feel like that's just another confusing factor. I mean, I, I, I think that can be put down just to, like, laziness. Like editorial you know? laziness. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I was going to say also just editorial timelines in terms of, you know, like getting magazines printed. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Actually, no, no, no. No, no, that <laughs> Eli does kind solved of it. raise the question, though, of I guess she was under the impression that he was, like, alive when the article was being written and these photographs were being taken probably on that shorter timeline. So then if it's a lie and she thinks he's alive and like, do we know how he died? Was it expected? From memory, I think he was reasonably young and it was like a heart attack. Not like young, young, but like, you know, he wasn't like 70 or or 80. Yeah. Okay. So she writes this article and takes a bunch of stage photos about her married life with this man who is around, potentially married to another woman and definitely going to continue living, and then he just dies. I'm not suggesting she killed him, to be fair. <laughs> I, I'm genuinely not. I realised that that very much looks like I was suggesting Gladys killed him. It did. I was like, where are you going? With no, 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 I'm not. I'm just saying that, like, that's it, just didn't... a really weird vibe. Yeah, like, if we assume that Gladys did not know that JT Gibson was about to die when this article was written, yeah. then either Gladys and JT were genuinely married, and we can assume that, for example, members of his family or a previous wife or something like that decided they didn't want that to be part of his public image on death yeah. well Gladys and JT were never married and Gladys faked a wedding to a real living human who could easily deny that or he would have said like all right I'll go in on this with you if they were friends or something Maybe. and then afterwards his family was like no <laughs> that's true that's a possibility yeah I don't know if there's any reason for the general public at the time to view this with suspicion or is there view what with suspicion well just like the whole thing of her being straight and I married to these men I don't think mm, so yeah like, she was known to be a lesbian, but I don't think that people would have immediately thought she was lying if she said, oh, you know, I was a lesbian, but then I married a man. Like, there's actually quite a few letters that come out in response to this Ebony article from other queer people who say things like, I've had this experience, I was a lesbian, I'm married to a man now, I know exactly what you've been through, and like, that kind mm. of thing. It happened that lesbians went on and married men, you know, whether by choice or by social pressure. This wasn't an unrealistic story. Except, um, except for the specific details of it that make it very suspicious. Yeah. Do you want me to chuck in one more fact for you? Please. In the same month the Ebony article was published, generally after the Ebony article was published, Gladys did marry a man <laughs> named Charles Roberts. This marriage really occurred. We have photos of them together. It actually happened. They later divorced, but... Okay, so one factual marriage and yes. three potentially fictional ones. Correct. I just want to keep track. Yes. Will there be any more marriages? Fictional no, or factual? No, we're good. Okay. 
I don't know how to feel about any of that. Yeah. Nor do I. I mean, I guess we do have, like, next to no information about most of Gladys's life. Yeah, yeah, we do. So we can't view, like, lack of evidence as damning. No, we the can't. The whole thing with JT is bizarre, though. Yeah, it's, it's baffling. I okay. really thought when we got into this article it would be much more about her, like, Queerness. emotional and mental state around declaring she wasn't queer anymore. And instead it's become this corkboard <laughs> of, is she making up things? So, okay. Yeah. So moving on from that nonsense, I do have a few more things that I want to say about this article. So as I mentioned, Ebony listed this article as a self-help article, and Gladys concludes it with the hope that, quote, if I can steer some unknowing youths, tempted by the lure of something different from succumbing to the snare and instead turn into the path of righteousness, I would feel some redemption from my sins. At the same time, however, Gladys still speaks about herself in present tense as a queer person in the article, and she also speaks very sympathetically about the queer community. She writes that, quote, Our number is legion and our heartbreak is inconceivable. Very few people can understand us. We wince at the many harsh suggestions of what should be done to rid the world of the abnormalcy to which we cling. So obviously, you know, we can speculate about Gladys's motivations in writing this article, but I think even within the article, we can kind of see this conflict between declaring queerness as a sin and as a thing she's left behind and a thing that she really encourages other people to leave behind. And at the same time, talking about kind of social responses to put a stop to queerness as harsh and saying that queer people are misunderstood and are suffering inconceivable heartbreak and so forth. I don't think those things really contradict, though, necessarily in her presentation of them. Mm -hmm. Like, if she's presenting it as like, oh, queer people are these poor souls who are afflicted, then that's certainly something you could say. Mm. And therefore, society shouldn't be so hard on them. You know, they need to find their way back or whatever yeah and i guess if you link that to like the thing she says about when she was a kid of like my parents didn't need to take me to doctors i just needed to be loved and given like wholesome hobbies basically she's saying that queer people through love and being directed back onto the right path can stop being queer and certainly if you're going to make an argument that queer people should be cared for more in the context of being published in a major publication in a society that is anti-queer that's the path that you're going to take Mm. like that is the argument that you're going to make which is not obviously to excuse or justify her argumentation i obviously disagree Mm. but i think that that's obviously what she's going to say in that situation yeah which i guess does bring us to the question of like obviously you've read this in full and Mm. spent the most time with gladys so how genuine do you feel like this change is like how much is this a self-conscious attempt just to keep an audience and how much is this a deeply felt it's very hard to say because we don't have any of gladys's words but my instinct is that it's an attempt to keep an audience just because of a few things that we do see kind of in her career at the same time so like i mentioned that she started performing in much more like traditionally feminine Mm. dress but she is still for example performing in queer clubs that 1957 article i mentioned which is the first reference to her supposedly having a wife also says that you know oh she said this in ebony but she's since returned to her old ways it's a pretty gossipy article so i don't think we can like take it as fact but there are these few little things that kind of suggest that she hasn't necessarily taken this path she claims to have taken in this article in ebony okay well that's encouraging frankly it is encouraging yeah and like it's it's so hard to say because this is all the words we have from her Mm. so yeah and that what you've just said there does kind of get at what I was trying to get at with my previous comment, which is mm. I think this article, the quotes that you've read from it and the way that you've talked about it indicates a person who is trying to straddle a very, very narrow line 
where she's trying to not throw queer people under the bus, mm. but also make herself more palatable to a straight audience. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, obviously, you know, that's casting aspersions on her sincerity here. You know, obviously we can't be certain of that, but it certainly makes a great deal of sense that she would make these specific kinds of comments with these specific kinds of caveats if it was the case that she genuinely still felt a lot of affection and care for the queer community, but was trying to maintain her career in the face of conservative backlash. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So apart from the article in Ebony and an appearance on Groucho Marx's TV show You Bet Your Life, which is where that recording I played of Gladys at the very start comes from, and that happened in 1958, apart from that, not much is known about the latter part of Gladys's life, as we've already got the impression from the fact that she may or may not have had three different marriages. We do know that she became very involved with her church in her later life, and she was about to become a minister of her church before she passed away. About to become a minister of her church? Yep, that's all I know about that. Which? It's called the Temple of Love in Christ, so I believe it's an independent black church. Okay. Um, When is this? This is the 1950s. Explain how she's allowed to become a minister in the 1950s. I saw that was quite a big deal. I I don't know very much about this sort of thing, but I am under the impression that not a lot of Christian denominations let women become ministers until like considerably later. Look, that is probably true. And like I found like literally one sentence in anything I read about Gladys that mentioned this basically. I do know, for example, like when we talked about Rosetta Tharp, who was also a black woman who was very heavily involved with her church, she wasn't like ordained but she did play like quite a big role in her church and it was possible and she was in the temple of god in christ a slightly different church the temple of love in christ but i was going to ask if that was just the exact same church because it sounded very familiar thank you for clarifying a slightly different church so in that setting i know that rosetta's mother and this was earlier in the 20th century did preach for example Mm. and she was able to do that as like a single woman involved in the church and i think there was an implication that if she married some of that ability to do that would be taken away and she'd be expected to take on a more domestic role mm-hmm. so whether when we say like become a minister i don't know quite how formal mm-hmm. that process is and whether that would be considered equal to like a man in that position or if it's a more confined role i guess it's worth noting that i don't actually know like when african-american men started to be able to be ordained by like established theological seminaries either this is a black church yeah. so i think they would have had their own like processes to okay. ordain their own ministers i did try to look up the temple of love in christ but like there are so so mm. many small churches in america and this one i really only found information in the context mm. of either here's a list of churches like just from a mm-hmm. some kind of administrative setting or talk about Gladys herself. So I don't have any information about that church in particular. Yeah, so it was right before Gladys's death that she was about to become a minister, and Gladys passed away at the age of 52 on January 18th, 1960, from pneumonia. Hmm, that's quite young. I don't really know how to feel about a lot of that. That's fair. I mean, I do enjoy it when we do episodes on, like, less well-known queer historical figures. And I think it's a tremendous shame that we're not being paid a lot of money to go and further our research because I think it's inevitably the case with these ones that we end up with questions that Mm. would just need to be answered by being able to do more original research that we will never be able to do. Yeah. Um, But, like, even though they're slightly frustrating, I think it's good to do these sorts of things, like information about... Mary Shelley or whoever is pretty easily available, but not so much about Gladys Bentley. So, Mm -hmm. you know, even though it was a confusing time, I'm glad we're here. (laughs) Um, I'm glad we got to 
interact with the Harlem Renaissance a little bit finally. Hopefully we will interact more. I do want to do an episode or I want one of us to do an episode on Langston Hughes. Yeah. It was good to see him. Yeah, and I I think it would be good if we could come back to as well like just an episode on like butch femme culture in the early 20th century because it's not, I think, really something we can do justice to as background to another episode. Yeah, yeah, Um, that's definitely true too. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also check out the sources for this episode and the rest of our episodes as we gradually upload the sources on our website, queerasfact.com. You can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review because that really helps us to reach a wider audience. And if you do leave us a review, we might also read it out on this podcast. And Eli is about to read us a couple of those reviews now. So our first review is from someone whose username I don't know how they intended it to be said aloud. So I'm just going to say it's from Ray AUH2O. I hope you're satisfied with that. (laughs) Um, Who is from the United States and who has given us five stars and the title 100%. And they have written A plus. I hear you are looking for a letter grade. Did we say <laughs> that we were looking for a letter grade? Maybe we did. I think at some we point. probably did. Yeah. <laughs> I am a teacher, so I have the authority to give those. I know. I remember you said you weren't at uni and you craved like qualitative, oh, quantitative it's... grading of your life. Okay, <laughs> probably. I <should> yeah. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Then it's like that scene with Lisa from The Simpsons where she's like, "Grade me <laughs> when they're off school." Okay, I'm a teacher, so I have the authority. Authority to give those. <laughs> Never mind that I teach middle school. Thank you for your compassionate, committed research. Your podcast is frequently in my learn more section for students. They love Aww. it. That is amazing. Thank That's- you so much for sharing us with your students. That was like a dream of ours when we first started out and is part of the reason why we don't swear on this podcast. So I'm very glad that my secret plan paid off. Thank you for your review. I also want to read a review that was sent to us from Marie, who is from Germany, and they write, I'm writing to you from the faraway land of Germany and would like to especially thank you for your episode on Frederick the Great. I'd love to hear you say your nickname for him, Der Alter Fritz. Yeah, I so fun fact about that actually, um, because there were multiple Fredericks in that episode, I tried to convince Alice to just call him that the whole way through and she refused. So uh, I'm sorry that you were robbed of that until I didn't now. Feel Why com- Alice specifically? I didn't feel comfortable talking about his like misogyny with a cute nickname. Yeah, valid, valid. But you did feel fine contrasting it with fifty thousand cute dog anecdotes. <laughs> such is the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. It might be true that scholars aren't ignoring his sexuality, but it's definitely not known to the general public. I did not learn about it in school, and it was only hinted at in an audio guide at Rheinsberg. So although I had heard the rumours, it's not something anyone without a very particular interest in history would know. So thank you very much for shining a light on this. Yeah, I also like the idea of, like, a euphemism for queer being someone with a very particular interest in history. (laughs) I was about to say that exact thing. (laughs) And that's, like, really interesting to know. I, I did sort of wonder what, like, the general state of knowledge was in Germany where obviously mm. there's just more general state of knowledge about Frederick the Great anyway yeah I don't know if it would warrant an entire episode but as a German I'd love to hear your thoughts and research on sexuality and gender in the Weimar Republic <laughs> oh Marie Another topic we haven't broached because it's yeah. too big. <laughs> um, I have been throwing around trying to figure out how to do like series of episodes on this podcast for a while and I'm like not really sure how it would work how I would find the time but like that is my goal 
for that period. So it would warrant an episode and maybe then three more. (laughs) Um, As a Berliner, I'm especially fond of my town's queer history and would love for that to get more recognition. Sorry for rambling on and thank you again for the work you do. I can't stress its impact enough, especially in these times. Much love and admiration, Marie. Thank you, Marie. Yeah, thank you. That was delightful. It was. That was very good. You can also support this podcast financially by signing up as a patron. And if you do sign up as a patron, you get a variety of perks, including voting on episode topics, some free merch, and a shout out on this podcast. And today I'd like to thank Jay, Anna, Allison, and Sarah for supporting Queer as Fact. You can also buy our merch from our Redbubble store, and you can find links to all those things I've just mentioned on our website, queerasfact.com. I'd like to acknowledge the Yalakud Willem clan of the Bunwarang and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on the 15th of September when Eli will be talking to us about World War II fighter pilot and race car driver Roberta Cow. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then. 